All right, well, good morning, everybody. It is uh, good to see you guys this morning as we uh, continue to celebrate Advent. Over the past few weeks here at Redemption Church, we have been going back through the book of Matthew and looking at places in Matthew uh, where Isaiah is quoted in order to sort of point to Jesus as the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promise of a king that would come and rule on the throne of David forever and whose kingdom would have no end. Um, And that's what we're doing, that's what we're going to be doing again this morning. Uh, Several months ago, uh, Ben and Brent and I began to talk about the series and figure out what it's going to look like. I think the series was actually Ben's idea. And then a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago, I think Ben and Brent conspired to give me the hardest sermon possible to preach in reference to the Advent as we move back through the book of Matthew and look at Isaiah. Um, But I'm going to try to do it this morning, and we're going to do justice to God's Word and look at it and see what God would have to say to us from the book of Isaiah and from the book of Matthew. Uh, But as we get started this morning, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll move on from there. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be present this morning. Thank you that uh, we've had an opportunity to be together already and sing together and hear your, re- hear your word read over us and confess together and hear the promise of the forgiveness of sins that you offer. And even now, God, as we begin to look at your word from Isaiah chapter 40 and Matthew chapter 3, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds that we would hear exactly what it is that you would want us to hear. Um, God, I pray that as I stand on this stage... Um, that the things that I would say and communicate would be things that bring honor and glory to your name and lift Jesus high. I recognize that my words are of little importance, God, but your words are of utmost importance. So I pray that we would hear your words. I pray that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel, an instrument of love, that Jesus alone would be lifted high and that we would be drawn to you because of Jesus. And God, I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Our Advent reading this morning closed with this statement from 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Beholding his love for us, may we love him and how we love others. When you hear the word love, what is it that you think of? If I tell you to love someone or you think about being loved, what is it that you think of? Like me, is it a very academic uh, exercise? Do you start thinking about the definition of love? And if this is what the definition of love is, then this is how we display love to others. Or do you have a much more visceral, internal response where you begin to think about the people that you love and the things that you love and maybe the animals that you love and maybe the memories your pets that you love, and maybe the memories of pets or the memories of people or whatever it may be, is that sort of the response that you have? Uh, I'm not picking on her, but my wife is here, and so if I were to say, what do you think of when you think about love, her response would be something to the effect of um, maybe remembering times where she felt love or remembering times where love was extended to her, whereas my response would be much more academic, like I said, and, and much more... Um, internal thought processing type of thing. And we would all respond in a different way when we think about love. But 
the point remains we're going to respond. We're going to think about something when we talk about love. A couple of months ago, I had the opportunity uh, to um, perform my niece's wedding ceremony. I was, I was a co-officiant with another pastor, and uh, we had an opportunity to sort of uh, talk about a memory that we had about um, the couple as they were getting married. And so the other, the other officiant was the uncle of the guy. I was the uncle of Noel, my niece, who we actually baptized out here on the front porch a few months ago, and then I did her wedding a week later. But during the wedding, I had an opportunity to share this story. When Noel was very young, her parents, my brother and his wife, lived in Augusta. He was in the army, and they were here for just a short while. And there was one particular day that I was babysitting or taking care of Noel. And um, she was young, and for whatever reason, that day, she didn't want anything to do with me. Like, she just didn't want to talk to me. She didn't want to look at me. Uh, she was okay with everybody else. She was not okay with me that day. I don't even remember why. And I sat down on a chair in the living room and began to eat a bag of potato chips. And so Noelle all of a sudden paid attention, and she walked over to me, and uh, she said, Uncle Reggie, I love you. And it was so sweet. And then she said, now can I have some potato chips? And that led down the road of me thinking that day and in the future, when we talk about love, what are we talking about? When we talk about love, what are we really getting at? Scripture tells us that God made known his love for us by sending his son into the world. That's what we read about just a second ago. It's what I reminded us of. And that's what we celebrate during the Advent season, right? God sending his son into the world to make his love known to the world. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, I would encourage you to go ahead and flip over to Isaiah chapter 40. That's where we're going to start this morning, uh, Isaiah chapter 40. But as we get to Isaiah 40, let me give you a little bit of background. In Isaiah chapter 40, the story begins to take a turn. Um, it's sort of a transition in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 39, the setting is sometime around 700 BC, about 700 years before the life of Christ. The northern kingdom of Israel had fallen captive to Assyria some 20 years prior, and King Hezekiah is now king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. Um, if you remember, the kingdom of Israel divided into two kingdoms. The only one left is the southern kingdom. Uh, Hezekiah is now the king. Babylon is a world power. Assyria has already defeated uh, the northern kingdom. And so Babylon sends some uh, envoys to King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah invites them in. He shows them all of his treasures, all of the treasures of the kingdom, uh, everything that he owned. And in showing off his possessions and his wealth, it begins to be revealed that his heart is turning away from God toward his treasure. And so Isaiah shows up, and Isaiah speaks into the situation, and Isaiah reminds Hezekiah that one day the kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Israel, will fall to the Babylonian empire because of their unfaithfulness to God. And Hezekiah demonstrated that unfaithfulness by, by being prideful over his possessions and pointing to them rather than 
to God. And so then Isaiah 40 shifts. And the setting for Isaiah 40 is actually over 120 years later when the children of Israel are actually captive in Babylon. So you have a shift to where Isaiah starts looking to the future. And so the setting is no longer King Hezekiah. The setting is God's people are captive and they're asking God to do something to give them relief. Jerusalem doesn't actually fall to Babylon until about 120 years after Isaiah writes this. Or let me phrase that, until about 120 years after uh, what takes place in Isaiah 39 takes place. But Isaiah's tone changes in chapter 40 as the setting changes to a tone of comfort as he speaks into the current situation um, that Hezekiah faces, as he speaks into the situation that the children of Israel will find themselves in 120 years down the road and into the future coming of the king that will sit on the throne of David forever, whom we know to be Jesus. Isaiah knows that because of Judah's unfaithfulness, they will be in exile, they will be captive, and they will be looking for God's deliverance. And so Isaiah begins to speak comfort to God's people. And this is from Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Notice with me what Isaiah promises as comfort for God's people, even as they are in captivity in Babylon. He promises comfort. He promises pardon from their sin and restoration with God. He points to God and says there's going to be a path made to get to the deliverer. Starting in verse 5, we see the typical push that you see throughout Isaiah for God's glory to be revealed, for God's glory and might to be revealed so that God's people would come back to, to God. And in verse 10 and 11, we see a mighty God who rules and yet who cares for his people like a shepherd caring for lambs. What we have here in Isaiah is the picture of a God who loves his people enough to have a plan to display his glory so that once again his people will return to him and be delivered. It was their sin that put them into exile, but God had a plan for deliverance. 
In Isaiah 40, he comforts his people by saying there will be a deliverer. There will be comfort. There will come a time when you are delivered, when God stands mighty for you. So wait. Wait. Have you ever been working to solve a problem or figure something out and then all of a sudden all the pieces fall in place and you figure out what you need to figure out? Where all of a sudden you get it, where you see the big picture, where everything starts to come into focus and make sense, where things just begin to click, where all the pieces of the puzzle come together. Do you know what I'm talking about? I've never had that experience because I'm impatient. And so I can't wait long enough for that to happen. I'm not sure that I've ever had that aha moment. But when we get to Matthew chapter 3, what Matthew is doing as he references Isaiah chapter 40 is putting the pieces of the big picture together. Matthew chapter 3, if you want to turn there, we're going to look at a few verses. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." Matthew chapter 3, Matthew, the writer Matthew, begins to put the pieces of the puzzle together to help us to see the big picture. Matthew takes us all the way back to Isaiah to remind us that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the king who will sit on the throne of David forever, and John the Baptist here is the forerunner to Jesus to announce that Jesus is on the scene. The the whole book of Isaiah, don't miss this, the whole book of Isaiah points to the fact that God's people are part of a bigger story of God's glory. A story that points to the coming heir to David that will bring light to the world and sit on the throne of David forever, whose kingdom will have no end. And so Matthew connects the Old Testament trajectory of God's salvation of his people to the very person of Jesus. That was John the, the Baptist's purpose too, right? Was to connect God's big plan of salvation from the Old Testament to the New Testament. John the Baptist was the last of the sort of Old Testament prophets and he connects everything 
to Jesus. And that's what Matthew is doing for his readers. He's connecting God's big picture of salvation in the Old Testament to Jesus as the fulfillment of that deliverer that God promised. He's putting the puzzle together so that we can see the big picture. So stay with me here for a minute, okay? I don't want you to get lost. Stay with me. Matthew's connecting the big picture. Over and over and over in the New Testament Gospels, when you see John the Baptist, what you see John the Baptist doing is pointing people to Jesus. He's sending people to Jesus. He's making much of Jesus. And that's what he's doing right here in this passage in Matthew 3. Even when John the Baptist has questions because things aren't going like they're supposed to. If you remember with me, there comes a time when John the Baptist is in jail and things aren't looking like they're supposed to. So he sends some disciples to Jesus to find out what's going on. Regardless of the circumstances, John is constantly sending people to Jesus, constantly pointing to Jesus, constantly making much of Jesus. And in, this Matthew that, and in this passage that we just read from Matthew, that's what John the Baptist is doing. He tells these Pharisees to turn away from their identity as children of Abraham and turn to Jesus as the true and better Abraham. And he tells them to do that through a baptism of repentance. That's what we just read about. And this was a remarkable demand of John on his Jewish kinsmen on his fellow religious believers. In the context in which John lived, baptism had one main significance for the Jewish faith. And it was for proselytes who were not Jewish that wanted to become Jewish. Baptism was part of that rite, part of that process. And so John is here telling these Pharisees that they need to be baptized just like somebody who wasn't even Jewish. And this made John's baptism very offensive. It implied that unless they were willing to print, to repent, that they were not really Jewish and could not count on the promised blessings of God that God had made to his chosen people, like the promises in Isaiah chapter 40, that they would have a deliverer. To put it another way, in calling these very religious Jewish people to accept a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, John was telling them that they cannot rely on their Jewishness for their own salvation. They have to be changed in their heart toward God. And then in verse 11, John does the very thing that he always does. He points to Jesus and says, Jesus is where you need to go for that salvation. John says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John points them straight to Jesus. And in the moment, the message that these people were hearing from John the Baptist probably didn't really feel very loving. He's telling them to turn away from any and all reliance upon what they are by birth or what they had been doing through their religious practices, through their own effort, and instead turn to Jesus. He's telling them that everything they believe about how to be rightly related to God is wrong. He's cutting at the very core of their identity and their religious efforts. He's calling them out. 
And I want you to feel the weight of that. What John would have been saying to them would have been incredibly alarming. He's going after them. But in going after them and telling them that everything that they believe is going to save them is wrong, where does he point them? To Jesus. He points them to Jesus. Have you ever been in a situation where you knew something had to be done, but the very thing that needed to be done was heart-wrenching and difficult? When my daughter Laurel, Laurel is... Um, my youngest daughter, she's about to turn nine on Wednesday, on the 21st. Um, when Laurel was about six weeks old, uh, she was incredibly sick uh, to the point where she was having trouble breathing. We didn't really know what was wrong, but we ended up having to take her to the emergency room one night. Um, and I'll never forget being in that emergency room and the doctors coming in and people coming back and forth. And I you may have noticed this, but when doctors and nurses and other medical professionals are in, you know, the room and they come in and they're giving each other the eye and they're winking at one another and they're like nodding. And I'm like, hey guys, why don't you just tell me what's wrong? Can you just tell me what's going on? Because we know something is wrong. And so um, they ended up doing this test to where they had to put a scope. Stay with me. This is kind of disgusting, but I had to put a scope through Laurel's nose and down her throat to sort of get a sample of mucus or phlegm to figure out what was going on. In the grand scheme of things, looking back on it, it's not that big a deal, right? They, they had to figure out what was going on. It hurt. But in the moment, as a parent, when you see your child in that much distress and somebody's sticking a scope through their nose down their throat, it's heart-wrenching, right? It's difficult to see that and be okay with what's happening. On one hand, I know that it needed to be done. But as a parent in the moment, it's horrifying to watch because you want to comfort your child. But you know as well that this needed to be done to help figure out what's going on. And that's how I comforted myself in that moment that this has to be done so that we could know what's wrong, so that we would know how to treat her, so we would know which direction to go in from there. And that's what John is doing here. John is doing something that would be incredibly heart-wrenching for these religious people because he's cutting at the very core of who they are and instead pointing them to Jesus. John constantly points people to Jesus. And here's why. Because Jesus is what is best for them. In the moment, it stings and it hurts to hear that you're wrong. In the moment, it stings and it hurts to hear that your identity and what you've built your life around and what you think is truth is wrong. It hurt. But John is trying to love them by pointing them to Jesus and to his glory and to his might and until his work of salvation. And here's truth. If we love people, we will point them to Jesus. If we truly love people, like John, we will point them to Jesus. A lot of times that's the most difficult thing to do. It's incredibly difficult to point people to Jesus in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of questioning, in the midst of all that's going on. It's incredibly hard to point people to Jesus sometimes. But if we love people, 
We'll point them to Jesus, and that's what John does. Circle back with me to Isaiah 40 for a minute. Stay with me, okay? Circle back to Isaiah chapter 40. Let me read you a couple of passages that aren't going to be on the screen, but I just want you to hear what they say. Verses 15 and 17, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Those verses are talking about God and his might and his glory and his majesty. In verse 21 and 23, Isaiah 40, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circles of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Again, it's pointing to God and all his majesty and might and glory. In Isaiah 40, when Isaiah wants to bring comfort to God's people, he points to God's might, to God's majesty, to God's glory, to his overwhelming nature of majesty. And John the Baptist is doing the same thing in Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist and Isaiah have something in common. They are pointing people to the overwhelming glory and majesty and might of of God. They're pointing people to the deliverer that we know to be Jesus, of the king who will reign forever. And here's what I want you to see. It would be completely unloving of God to point us anywhere other than to his might and his glory and his majesty and his sovereignty and his love. Because anything else he would point us to would ultimately fail us and not bring the comfort that Isaiah 40 is promising. Are you with me? God, in pointing us to his might and majesty and glory and pointing us to Jesus, is doing the most loving thing possible he can do for us because anywhere else he would let us stay or anywhere else he would point us to would ultimately fail us. Anything else would be less than satisfactory and less than satisfying. Hear this. The love of God for sinners is not made manifest in his allowing them to continue in a way and a direction that takes them away from God. Rather, the love of God is manifested as Jesus is raised high and people are brought to the very one, the only one, that can satisfy the deepest needs of our hearts and souls, the need to be rescued and delivered forever. God's people in Isaiah 40 needed to be rescued from a temporary situation. And that situation was terrible for them. But their greatest need was to be rescued and delivered forever. That's all our greatest need. Allow me, if you will, to bring Advent back into focus. We've looked at Isaiah 40. We've looked at Matthew 3. We've looked at Isaiah 40. We've looked at John the Baptist. Let's bring the season of Advent back into focus. During the Advent, we focus on Jesus coming to earth, on his birth. And the following set of verses from the Gospel of John is not normally thought of as a Christmas passage, but let me convince you otherwise. 
John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Paul David Tripp has some Advent resources up on, a, up on his website, and I would encourage you to check those out if you never had, if you never have. But he has a devotional video on his website where he makes the point that Christmas is really about a tree. And obviously it's not about a Christmas tree. He makes a point that when Jesus was born, when Jesus was a baby, the ultimate end of his life was a tree. And we know that tree to be the cross. When the angels sang about Jesus, they were singing about a man that would hang on a cross. When the shepherds came to see Jesus from the fields, they came to see God himself as a baby that would one day hang on a cross. That when the wise men found Jesus later, they found a king that would hang on a cross. The cross was always the end game. The birth of Jesus doesn't make sense without his sacrifice to come. The cross was always the end game. When Isaiah 40 says, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's what happened at the cross and with Jesus' resurrection. The ultimate fulfillment of what Isaiah 40 promises happened as Jesus was born, died on a cross, raised from the dead and set us free from Satan's sin and death forever. Jesus' glory was made known at the cross. When John the Baptist points people back to Jesus, he was pointing them to the one that would love them enough to suffer and die on a cross to give them what they thought they already had, to give them what they didn't even know they needed. In order to fulfill the plan of God to make a way for people to get back to him, to be rescued from exile back to the Father. Because of the nature of sin, we are unable to help ourselves. We are unable to escape this dilemma that grips all of our hearts. We are unable to fix the world. But in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we know the reconciliation will happen. And in the death of Jesus, we know that it wasn't that God enjoyed the suffering of his son, but we know that God found pleasure in what that suffering would result in. This great story of Jesus coming to earth doesn't start with Jesus' birth. It starts before the foundations of the world. And so this story of Advent is a story of magnificent Love. It's a story that Isaiah played a role in, that John the Baptist played a role in, that the writer of the Gospel of John played a role in, that we play a role in as we point people to Jesus. God loved us this much that he would be willing to subject his son to unthinkable things because that one death would give life to many. There's the plan. Point people to Jesus because God did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. That's the story of Advent.
It's a love that we could never achieve or earn or deserve. We can only receive as a gift. Isaiah promises comfort to God's people as he points people to God's magnificence and glory and might and to the deliverer that will come. John the Baptist points his fellow kinsmen to Jesus as a mighty deliverer that could deliver them from something they didn't even know they needed to be delivered from, their own sin. Why would we emphasize this so much, even as we are celebrating the birth of Christ? Why would, why would we celebrate this? Why aren't we talking about Jesus in a manger? Why are we talking about Jesus being born so that he could die on a cross? Why am I emphasizing that even now? And here's why. I want you to understand the magnificence of God's love. And maybe sometime next week, maybe sometime next month, maybe sometime in the next year, you will in some circumstance, some location, some relationship, be tempted to doubt the love of God. Maybe it will be a moment of physical suffering and you will wonder, why God continues to allow this pain to be in your life. Maybe it will be in the midst of a very, very significant relational disappointment. Somebody that you love has turned their back on you and you wonder why God has brought this into your life. Maybe it will be in a moment of financial difficulty where you sought to obey God, you sought to be a good steward, but you've lost your job and it just doesn't make any sense in the moment. Maybe you'll just look around at the world you'll live in. You'll look at your own circumstances and you'll wonder where God is as you suffer or as you see the suffering around you. And as you're tempted to doubt God's love for you, I want you to hold on to the truth that God is great and glorious and yet he loves you enough to die on a cross to be your deliverer from the very thing that you could never deliver yourself from. This is the place to run because not only does the giving of Christ argue for the magnificence of God's love for you, but it argues that God's love for you will continue to exist. As God continues to love you, as God continues to love us, as God continues to demonstrate his love for us, as we continue to hold truth to the fact, hold tight to the fact that God's love was demonstrated for us in the work of Christ, it is imperative, absolutely imperative, that we be like John and Isaiah and be part of the bigger story that points people to both God's glory and majesty and might and to his love through Jesus. We point people to Jesus because it's the most loving thing we can do. We point people to Jesus because Jesus loved us enough to suffer and die and pay a debt we owed but could not pay. As we celebrate Advent, as we think about the birth of Christ, as we reflect on Jesus being born as a baby, as we sing songs, as we sing Christmas carols, as we experience all the things of Christmas that we love, I pray that we understand that the birth of Christ was always looking forward to the cross. And as we remember the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, may it be that we understand the magnificence 
and might and glory of God's love for us. And may we be willing to demonstrate that love to others by pointing people to Jesus. There are very practical things we can do to love people. Some of you um, may even be involved in those types of things right now in your missional communities, DNA groups, families, whatever it is. There's very real ways that we can practically love people around us. But the most, the greatest need we all have is to be rightly related to God. And so may we be willing to always point people to Jesus. It would be unloving to allow people to remain where they are instead of pointing them to Jesus. We're going to close with a time of response. We do this every um, Sunday here at Redemption. We close the same way. This is what's going to happen over the next few minutes. The band's going to come back up, and they're going to continue to lead us in singing. So we're going to have an opportunity to worship uh, by singing some songs together. Uh, During this time of response, you also have an opportunity to sit right where you are and reflect on what we've heard this morning. Maybe it's uh, a need to reflect on God's love for you. Maybe it's a need to reflect on how you can demonstrate God's love for others. But if you need to take a moment and sit where you are and pray and reflect, do that. If you need to pray with someone, there'll be some people in the back that you can pray with um, that will help you. If you have any questions, if you want to know more about God's love, what that means, what it's about, those people can pray with you and help you with that. Um, During this time as well, we have an opportunity to take communion Uh, we take communion every Sunday at Redemption, and here's why. As we come forward and we take the bread and dip it in the wine or juice, what we're doing is we're remembering what Christ has done for us, and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it. Uh, If you can't do that, I would would encourage you to stay where you are. But if you can remember what Christ has done for you, and you can say, I believe it, the gospel is true, Jesus has done something for me, then I encourage you to come forward and take communion and worship in that way. Whatever you do, whether you sit, stand, sing, take communion, give in the giving basket, uh, reflect, pray, whatever, I would encourage you during this time to continue to worship, to continue to look to Jesus, that Jesus might be held high and that we might be drawn to God because of that. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll go on from there. Um, God, thank you again, for the opportunity we've had this morning to hear from your word. And even now, as we continue to worship by giving, by taking communion, by singing, by praying, by reflecting, whatever it is, God, I pray that you would continue to be at work in our hearts and minds. I pray that you would continue to be at work drawing us to yourself. God, I pray that you would make your love known to us in a very real way. God, that we might know and experience the might the majesty of your love. And God, that we might be willing to point others to Jesus and to Jesus alone. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his birth, his life, his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. God, we thank you that you've provided a way for us to be rightly related to you. And God, even now, I pray that you would continue to draw us to yourself. And we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.